Hello and welcome to today's Dharma Things podcast. Uh, my name is Miss and with some carefully selected guests, these little bite-sized conversations are going to be talking about various things that guide us and help us navigate life, physical, emotional, historical, ancestral, different things. We'll be sharing journeys, experiences, and little gems of wisdom, hopefully having a bit of fun along the way. And my hope is that in these sessions, you can find some inspiration or knowledge or just some joy, just a bit of fun that might help you understand your Dharma. It's, uh, it's in the name, Dharma Things. And joining me this week is Lem Sisse. Hello, Lem. Hey, Miss. Good to be here. <laughs> God, my phone's just gone off. I'm sorry, I'll turn my phone off. Sorry. <laughs> That's a good Anna, can I, can I, I'm just in the middle of a podcast. <laughs> a brilliant podcast. Okay, see you. Bye-bye. <laughs> so this is typical Lem, being ridiculously busy. Words to describe Lem. Deep, serious, funny, busy. <laughs> you know, I've always wanted to... I, I remember... I used to use the word busy a lot when I was um, a few years ago, and I found myself putting the word busy in front of describing what it was that I was doing. And what it was that I was doing was what I loved. Yeah. So, you know, so uh, some people say, well, how are you doing? Oh, I'm, so, I'm busy, I'm doing this, that, and the other. And, uh, and, I, and I started to take out the word busy from my uh, speech and replace it with what I was feeling about what I was doing. Okay. And, um, for a short while, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> for a short while. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny because the, we can give ourselves away by the language that we use to describe what it is that we're doing. So by saying, oh, yeah, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm really busy. What I was trying to say, I think, at the time was, was was I think possibly was either I'm successful or yeah I've got work do you know what I mean and I think mm -hmm. I was trying to say oh no no honestly I'm really busy and, it, and actually actually it doesn't matter how many things you do it really is how you feel about what you're doing and who you are that matters above all things yeah and how you feel you know, because yeah. so what? You're busy. You know, so what? I'm doing this, that, and the other. I could, you know, roll out the the um, the events and exhibitions and travel and you know connections. But actually, the truth is, is that um, your own well-being will make everything so much easier. And I always find that. The people who are the busiest of all, or who have the most going on, never seem like they're busy. Right. Do you know what I mean? They don't. Yeah. They, just, they just, like, I can think of, like, famous rock stars or actors that I know, and, like, they're just doing what they do, mm -hmm. you know? And um, I, I think that's the way to live, really. Have I just overly talked? No, no, no. I knew this was going to happen. 
it's as though using the word busy is negating the quality of what those things are and what you are and what you're giving. It's just a word, isn't it? It's just a non-word to say that your time is full, but it's completely negating what it is that you're doing. I agree. And actually, it's right on the edge of describing the fact that you're out of control. It is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's right on the edge of that, yeah. that out of controlness. Yeah. There's a sense of panic to the sense busy. Yeah. Well, you know, it doesn't yeah. mean that you're necessarily comfortable with the, the stuff that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm doing what I'm what I think I'm doing, what I love doing. And so, you know, I should really, you know, should really acknowledge, acknowledge that and how lucky I am as well to be doing what I love doing. Um, yeah. In some ways, in some ways. Um, well, tell us what that is. Cause I mean, there might be people listening to this podcast who don't know you as I've known you for like 10 years or so. Now, no, I think really we, we, we first met, I was there, I don't think I'll ever forget the first time. Oh, was met. it at the Eden Project? It was at the Eden Project, yeah. yeah. And it was the first time I'd come across you and your work. And I was absolutely mind blown by this poet that was stood in front of me in this beautiful tropical biome, just with these immensely emotional things to say and I've never really connected with poetry before it's just been stuff I've never found anybody that had that had really really resonated with me the way that your work did and the way your delivery of your work as well um so yeah it must be 10 years ago that we met and well, it must be longer wasn't it or maybe I'm just going because 10 know, years I... ago because 10 years ago I was in London right um anyway um well yeah fill us in on on who you are and what you do well i'm a creative i guess and i guess people use that to describe all kinds of things i'm a writer i'm a poet um i'm director of the brighton festival this year i'm um uh, I, i've written my memoir which uh, is called my name is why Mm -hmm. I'm also a performer. I, I, I enjoy being on stage uh, and reading my works and uh, writing plays. I've written a few plays and, um, and the like. I guess that's, <laughs> that's it. I'm curating at the moment an exhibition in Manchester as well. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Lots of creative things. And this all started with you um, being a poet. Really? I think first and foremost, I am a poet. Um, and that's how I started. And I knew I was a poet at a very young age. And I pursued that one um, course of life, really. Yeah. And, um, and my first book was published when I was 21. My first book published by a different publisher. And, and I've lived my life as a poet since then to now, 30, 30 years later. Yeah. So tell us about your, your life. Um, you have a very interesting life. Like you said, you just uh, brought out your memoirs and it's been a big, long journey with the 
the stuff that's gone into that book. Um, so fill us in on you, on your roots, your beginnings. Well, um, my mum came to England in the late 1960s and found herself to be pregnant. She only came here to study for a short while. Um, I was fostered um, and the social worker who fostered me from my mother had no intention of giving me back to her. And he named me illegally after himself um, because my mother already had a name for me on my birth certificate. He gave me to foster parents and he said to them, keep this baby forever, he's yours, but you must call him Norman, which is like the most English of names. Norman. <laughs> wow. <Okay>. <laughs> So they wanted to call me Mark after Mark in the Bible. So I thought my name was Norman Mark Greenwood. They kept me for 12 years. They taught me to say mother and father. They said that they were my parents forever and that my own birth mother had rejected me, all of which wasn't true. And then at 12 years of age, they put me into children's homes and said they would never speak to me again. And I lost everybody. Um, I lost my mum, my dad, my sisters, my brothers, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my granddad, my grandma, my first girlfriend, my town, my first school, everything that I'd ever known. And I was carted off miles away to a children's home. Mm -hmm. And then I stayed for about four or five years in the children's homes until I was legally an adult, which was 18. And then I was released from the children's homes. I was in four of them over that five years, which meant I spent about 18 months in each home. Children were coming in and leaving. Staff were changing every four hours. So transience was my most um, clear form of identity, that people who come close to you leave. Right. And that was what, what I, right in the depth of myself, that's what I understood to be the normal way of things. That's what the family of the care system and the children's homes and the foster parents had taught me. That was my primary um, lesson from family. Mm -hmm. um, so when I left children's homes at 18, I didn't know anybody who'd known me for longer than a year. And by know somebody, I mean, I'd gone to their house, I'd break and broke bread with them, etc. And so from that point onwards, I, when I left the children's homes at 18, I was given a birth certificate because legally they had to give me my, my birth certificate because there was no adult to give it to. There was no parents or family. And my birth certificate had my name on it, which is Lem Sisei. Right. And it had my mother's name on it, which was Yamashet Sisei. And the social worker, a very good man, my final social worker, he said, somebody did love you. And he gave me letters from my mother pleading for me back to the social worker who'd stolen me from her, whose name was Norman. There was proof that he'd named me after himself. Right. My foster parents told me that anyway, but this was written proof of it. Because when he wrote back to my mother, he didn't call me Norman, he called me Lem. 
but he'd already changed my name to Norman. Right. Does that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was, I was given at eighteen the proof that something was wrong with what had happened to me in my childhood. I still wasn't sure. My mother said, I want Lem to be with his own people in his own country. I don't want him to face discrimination. And she said, how can I get Lem back? And she was 21 years of age at the time. So, so, and I, I mean, remember, I didn't know any people of colour by that time in my life. Mm-hmm. I was brought up in a working class white community in, in yeah. the villages of Lancashire, in yeah. the mining towns and the mill towns. And so the idea of finding somebody in another part of the world was just, just incredible. So I left the children's homes with two uh senses of myself one two aims one was to find my family and the other was to write poetry and perform poetry and become the poet that I was right so this instance when you were 18 years old has completely shaken up your entire existence well the first instance was when you were 12 really being taken away from that family that had looked after you and that you must have felt a sense of belonging to. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I did feel and... a sense of belonging to, towards them. And I, um, I wouldn't say anymore that they looked after me because even though I did have a wonderful time when I was with them, they said they were my family forever. Mm-hmm. So for them, to, and, I, and I was with them from the age of two months old. It's really interesting because the narrative is that they saved me. They saved a poor African child. And we think of fostering as being um, a very giving thing, a very kind thing to do. But we forget that that actually having a child is a two-way process. Like the parent benefits from having the child and the child benefits from having a parent. Mm-hmm. And that relationship shows itself over a lifetime. Yeah. Um, and both of them can break the rules of trust, both parent and child. Yeah. Both of them can make judgments of each other, which they're not willing to change, both parent and child. These are the dysfunctions of family. This is part of the functioning dysfunction of family. Mm-hmm. Nobody said to the child when they were born, um, you are guaranteed that your parents will always be who you want them to be because they can't be, they can only be themselves. Yeah. So they, so they will break your trust and they will, if you're lucky, you know, sort of you, you will break their trust and you will come to some sort of truce, some relationship truce. Mm -hmm. Um, But the worst thing you could do to a child is to force them to to not know you, to to guillotine them, the child, from any contact with any other member of family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what they did. So in, in many ways, I have a very extreme version of what many of us have, which is 
complex relationships with our parents. Yeah. Which is, which is something that can last a whole lifetime. But what mine did was they, they literally said, well, you're not part of us. You never were. Right. Because those dysfunctions can exist in any family that stays yes. together, can't they? Because yes. people, um, often, people often look at my story, Ms, and they'll be like, oh my God, that's so, that's so terrible and so distant from what th they might experience. But mm -hmm. the truth is, is that actually it's an extreme version of a lot of what happens to us inside families. People often assume that I think that family is some flowery, you know, sort of beautiful, you know, hillside in summer. <laughs> and I know it isn't. I know families are complicated. I know that we get hurt by our parents and our parents are hurt by us and stories get passed down from generation to generation, which don't get articulated, but which come out in the strangest of ways, abuses of trust, et cetera, et cetera. I know that that's in many ways, the beauty of family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how did, I mean, when you were 18 years old, obviously different perspective on the world six years after having gone back, you know, gone into the um, care homes. At 18 years old, this realization that there was a family out there in Africa, um, it's Ethiopia specifically, isn't it? What did this do to your entire sense of identity of who you were? Well, I mean, my family are all over the world because of uh, the revolution in 1974 in Ethiopia. So essentially, I have one sister who is in Ethiopia, and that's it. Everybody else is, is in Washington, D.C., and Boston, and New York, and etc. So it took me between the ages of 18 and 32 to find all of the family. That's my mother's side and my father's side. Mm -hmm. Um... I found my mum when I was 21. Now, I should say to you that, that I, th I think our identity is a growing thing. We, we, we you know, our, the relationship with our past always changes as we grow, I think. I mean, in my, sorry, in my experience of, of my own life. Mm-hmm. And so when I met my mum when I was 21, I think she found it impossible to tell me who my father was. So then I came back to England with like half the face of my mum who I'd met, half the face of my father who she wouldn't tell me. And I realized that actually the relationship that they had was having an effect on me because, because I did not know this other half. And it took me nine years for my mum to tell me my father's name. Right. And uh, I made a documentary on the BBC called Internal Flight. And you can actually, I'm on the phone to her and you can see when she says, you know. Right. She says his name. But I'd met her nine years before that and she didn't tell me his name and she didn't, um, she didn't tell me, she wouldn't, tell me who my sisters and brothers were. And the reason I'm sharing this is because I've come to an idea about identity after the long journey of finding them and the long journey of finding my father's family, the complexity of it, 
um, makes you kind of realize that at the end of finding them all, you have to sort of let them go and let all the stories go that go with it. Okay. How come? The preconceived ideas that you've got of what they're going to be, do you mean? Like everything's going to be this sort of summer flowery hillside? No, I, never, I know. I never had that. I never, I never had the idea. Is that what you were searching for, though, when you went on this journey to find this side of your family? Is that, Was there some part of you that was looking for that? Okay, there probably was, but I can't, I've <laughs> always tried to be pragmatic about it. I've always tried to say, you know, uh, look, it is what it is. I'm not asking anything of the family. I'm not asking anything of them. I just want to say hello and that I'm, I was born and, and here. But I think one of the things that I realized was that it's so complicated and it's so easy to blame yourself, your own presence in the world and, uh, or to blame others, you know, um, mm -hmm. and to become embittered. It's so easy to, to do that as you work through the detailed moments of family that you think relate to you. Because um, it's all story. Yeah. It's all story. It's important to find the answers to all of your questions, but it's even more important to, um, to let them go. Yeah. So we've not got us this this attachment to what our identity is. Like you said, it's something that can always change throughout our entire life. Yeah. Yeah. I think people get very attached to their identity. I am this. This is me. I am in this box. And aren't open to the fact that things within them and things around them are going to change and change the dynamic of that identity and let that go. And people find it really disruptive, don't they, when the things around them change and affect who they are. It's like people will say to me, you know, who are you? And I'm, I'm, I'm a black man, I'm an Ethiopian, I'm a British person, I'm a collection of molecules, I'm an egg, I'm from the north of England. You know, I'm all of those things. I'm yeah. a man. I'm a human being, you know, I don't have to choose between one of them. I think that's one of the lessons that I've learned throughout all of this, because family, I've realized, is incredibly tribal. Yeah. It's, it's all about, are you with this person? Are you with that person? Are you with this idea? Or are you with that idea? Because if you're with that idea, that means that you're not with those people. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's incredibly tribal. Yeah, yeah. And like, and like having an identity which can be at peace in some way in the middle of, the, of all of that is really important. Uh-huh. And I think that's one of the things that I'm learning as the days go by. Tell yeah. me, Miss, can I ask a question, Miss? Mm-hmm. What is um, Dharma? 
Dharma is um, finding your path. I guess that's the oh. easiest way to describe oh, it. Beautiful. Um, so <laughs> kind of, I mean, I won't go into the big long Buddhist, Buddhist explanations of it. Um, there are three important things in Buddhism and Dharma is one of them. And it's basically about finding the right path for you as an individual. And there are many facets to that not just in terms of finding the right path of your job, but finding the right path of understanding yourself and what you are in this world, um, what you bring to this world. That is your, your sense of dharma. Um, so when people find their dharma, it's, it's finding the things that are comfortable and that are right for them. That's really powerful. <laughs> because you know, It is. Ah, man, that's really powerful. But how did you, how, I mean, I, I have difficulties with my family. I don't know anything about any of my ancestry. My, uh, well, I won't say anything, but not an awful lot. But how do you feel about, like you just said, the, this tribal nature of family? And I guess you've got an excuse, for want of a better word, of being slightly outside of that. And how do you feel about that when you see this tribal nature and I guess the sort of bickerings and the strange dynamics of things that get meshed up in this spider's web of family? Um, for me, I spent a long time longing for the summery, flowery fields and then had this realization that there were some dynamics there that I was quite glad that I was actually away from. And uh, <laughs> the loneliness of that subsided and I'm quite okay being a little withdrawn for that. But I don't know, not everybody's the same as that. How do you feel as that, like that? Because you've got a completely different background to me. It's a really good uh, point you made there. And I think I've got to admit to like secretly wanting the, the flowery hillside of a family that I'm related to, but um, but it's a myth. The mm -hmm. flowery hillside of a family is a myth. Um, it's a myth, and family is complex, and um, we all get the hands that were dealt. And the question regarding identity is, how do we live it? How do we live with the hand that we've been dealt? How do we live with the family that we have and our heads? And, um, and ultimately, how do we live with ourselves? Because, you know, finding my family and finding identity or thinking I found identity, you know, the biggest question was when I left the family, it was like, okay, now you've done all of that. Who are you? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There is no golden moment where I go, ah, I am Ethiopian, I am British, I am this, I am that, you know, <laughs> there they are. There. It's like, the, there is no golden moment. It's like, how are you in the now? Yeah. With, with yourself and that, it's a really, it's really strange, isn't it? After spending my life, dedicating my life to finding every member of my family, cousins, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, all over the world, 
after traveling to find them, the question is, is, okay, who are you? Who am I? And like, how are you gonna, how are you gonna walk through the rest of your life? How are you gonna find your path actually, <laughs> interestingly? Yeah. And I mean, that's not, uh, has that had any sort of impact on you as, let's say, the collection of eggs, the molecules, the, uh, the poet? How did this journey affect that? Oh, well, I think that, you know, I've said it before, but, you know, I realised that I now have a fully dysfunctional family like everybody else. But <laughs> the truth is, you know, we live with our stories in our heads. And sometimes, sorry, let me talk about myself. I live with my story in my head as if everybody else related to my story, like my family, basically, live in exactly the same way about me. They mm -hmm. have thoughts about me in yeah. the same way as I have thoughts about them. It's not true and I can never know. Mm -hmm. The fact is I can never know how anybody else in the family is thinking about me. Yeah. Um, why am I saying that? Um, because it's got to be, like it's got to be part of the purpose of life to live your life, to live my life to the fullest. And, 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 and that's, so one of the things that, one of the gifts that I've been given is to be able to write poetry and to be able to be creative. And so I feel like I am seeing that through to the end. Mm -hmm. It's kind mm -hmm. of given you more collateral to work with. I mean, it's just made me go, okay, Lem, let's, let's get on. Let's do what you do best. And um, yeah, I sometimes, I mean, I, I now think that I often, you know, my story is, <laughs> it's just irritating me because I've written a <laughs> about it, you know, made documentaries on television, on the BBC, etc. Yeah. But, but that's all backstory, you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, I don't know what yeah. I mean, we've had conversations with um, people, I think our first guest on the show, Steph, does a lot of this um, ancestral healing. Um, and there's a lot to be said for how individuals feel about themselves when they realize their roots, when they understand the connections um, that they have through their heritage. Um, and I know for me, understanding an awful lot more about my heritage um, is, it's made a difference to how I feel about myself. Um, I kind of always had, always had mum and dad there, always had my nana there, my mum's mum. Um, but I always had this huge sense of distance from the rest of my family, from my dad's family, my Indian family. Um, and learning more about that heritage, just understanding the dynamics of India, for instance, oh. uh, things like that, has given me much more of a sense of being rooted, not actual connections with actual people, 
but just the more of a sense of being rooted. And it's not something that was ever in my life. I never had anything to do with Indian family when I was growing up. So, I mean, does has that sort of thing made any difference to you? The understanding, like you said, you were the only brown person around. You know, the amount of discrimination that just that in itself brings, regardless of whatever, you know, racism you may face as a kid at school or whatever. But just knowing that you are so blatantly different. I was the only brown kid in my school as well. Um, there's an amount of tension that was somewhere deep inside oh. here. Um, and understanding more about my heritage has really changed that. Have you felt that as well when you've understood a little more about Ethiopia and where your family are and the fact that they moved around the country, uh, around the world, different things like that? I've just got to, before I answer the question, you know, I, I was eight, it was 18 years of trauma when it came to race. You know, I was spat at in the street. I had to clean yeah. the back of my coat when I got home from school because it was had so much phlegm on it from being spat, spat at. I was nicknamed Chalky White. I was beaten. I had to run away from home, you know, run away to home uh, through being beaten on a daily basis over yeah. 18 years. There's all kinds of stuff. Um, okay, so that's the first thing to say. And the second thing to say is when you realize where you're from, it's just incredible. Like when you realize, when I realized, oh, I'm Ethiopian. And, and the more I discovered about Ethiopia, the spiritual practices of the church and the Muslim faith also that was there, the um, the nuanced nature of the, dif the nuanced differences between uh, each set of people within Ethiopia, the beauty, I mean, just the standalone beauty of the country. Oh my days. And some of the cultural practices, which I had no idea about, which just fill me with joy. Um, you know, and aside from that, being loved by Ethiopians, I'm now, I'm now relatively well known in Ethiopia through various things. So I can go there and perform on stage mm -hmm. and like hundreds of people will come to see me. I mean, I put it on my blog actually, you know, you, you can see when I visit Ethiopia, like uh, I, I, it's beautiful. Like my hotel room sometimes, sometimes is full of flowers from Ethiopian airlines. And right. you know, I've met the prime minister, I've met the foreign minister who then became the head of the World Health Organization right now, the man who's- Okay, okay. But, but not just that, but just good, solid friendships and so much love from Ethiopia and Ethiopians. I have now this whole other part of my life, which is part of who I am. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, I feel constantly at ease in Ethiopia. I can tell an Ethiopian from a, a thousand yards, just right. from the shape, shape of their face. And like all Ethiopians can tell each other, like if you put a crowd of like people of color I would be able to pick out the Ethiopians. <laughs> it's funny because my dad's from the Punjab. Right. And even though I'm only half Punjabi, certain people can tell. Of course they can. It's the it's eyes. So strange. It's strange. It's a mixture of the shape of the face. It's not just the eyes, actually. It's the whole thing goes together and it, it holds an identity. Yeah. Other people who are relative to that identity can see clear as day. 
Right, yeah, yeah. You know, to them it's like, oh, you're obviously, you know, this strong bone structure, you know, the, all, the whole thing goes together. Um, I, I, you know, I, I like the fact that I can tell like an Iraqi, or it's just about, about looking at people and traveling, you know, and then you start to see, oh, that's, you know, the faces of people from the, women from the Middle East actually is very strong featured. Punjabis are similar, Kashmiris, you know, the Kashmir look. Actually, you've got a, some of that actually because of the skin tone, because a lot of Kashmiris have, have a <laughs> lighter skin tone, but often there's green eyes as well in there, you know. So yeah, yeah. it's like, and, and, and actually the truth is, is that we're all related. So I will often say to somebody, oh, you're from Ethiopia. And they'll say, no, I'm from Somalia. Or no, I'm from Kenya, you know, so right. both of those, countries are close to uh, Ethiopia, next to Ethiopia. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, that in itself does something for your sense of identity and your sense of belonging and this sort of feeling of rootlessness that you might have grown up with. Yeah. You suddenly understand all this stuff. Oh and even though it's not something that's necessarily been prevalent in your mind or maybe the specifics of finding a family don't, seem to be that sort of monumental once you realize the complications just having more of a connection like you said with the practices and the people and the food i mean food, food. like like a, a food the food is so different yeah than what i was brought up with but the more i ate it the more i was like oh i get it i get this and, and the yeah. practice of how you eat yeah. You know, how you eat, you know, um, in Ethiopia, traditionally, in fact, all those, you eat with your hands and you eat yeah. with this bread called injera and you scoop up the meat with that bread. And there's a tradition of what's called gersha, where, okay. you, where you feed somebody that you love, you know, a family member, etc. And you, 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 you get the bread and you curl it around the meat and you hold it. And there's no, when you're good at this, I'm not good at it, but when you've grown up with it, you don't get any meat on your hands. It's very, it, you use the bread to scoop up the meat and you can feed the person next to you, you know, your brother, sister, mother, father. Yeah. It's just lots of little things like this mean that, oh, great. This is not just, I'm not just this kid from, you know, who eats just, I, it just, I was just, I just feel, more full and more sure of myself and more it's exciting yeah and I all those things that you were told were weird when you were a kid suddenly go out of the window don't they oh suddenly you're normal because like i look like a typical ethiopian you know yeah. so it's like ethiopians are not like pointing me out and uh yeah it's yeah. uh it's kind of beautiful really i mean i've had lots of moments of beauty mm -hmm. in finding my identity yeah that ever-changing identity yeah I mean <laughs> things remain the same I was brought up in the north of England I am Ethiopian even though I don't use speak the language I am a collection of molecules and at different times of your life you'll pay attention to different parts of your identity I guess you mm -hmm. know I guess for women you know different parts of their life they you have different parts of their identity. It's exactly the same for men, different parts of their life. Yeah, it's... Um, 
It's like you're constantly adding to the building blocks of this identity. It's not one thing. Yeah. All your experiences and your knowledge and your understanding of yourself and everything yeah. around you is constantly adding yeah. into the mix. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is going to bring me um, to the work that you've done for the Christmas dinners, which is another project that we worked on together. We did. Yeah. Um, and these young people who have been through what you have been through, yeah. um, possibly still in that, depending on their age. Yeah. Um, and again, have this sense of rootlessness, loneliness, this lack of belonging. Yeah. Um, so for everyone that's listening in on this, they might not be in the UK and be aware of the Christmas dinners. So fill us in on that briefly. Well, children go into leave, children leave the children's home and care system, the social services at eight, 18 years of age. And those years after 18, 18, 19, 20, 21 can be really difficult, particularly on Christmas Day because Christmas Day is a reminder of everything that they've never had, and that's family. So I started a thing in 13 years ago called the Christmas Dinners, and um, we put on a Christmas dinner on Christmas Day with brilliant Christmas presents for young people who've been in children's homes who are aged 18 to 21. And... Um, there was one in 2013, and last year there was um, 19 Christmas dinners all over Great Britain. Wow. So yeah. you know, London, many in London, uh, Cambridge, Leeds, uh, Manchester, Liverpool, Bristol, Brighton, etc., etc., etc. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And it's just teams of volunteers that come together to lead yeah. this, don't they? And people are sort of working in different teams. I know when I worked on the one in Leeds, we were working in different teams. Yeah. Uh, all the volunteers using their skills to either get donations for presents or raise money yeah. or putting the food together, actually doing the event planning and different things like that. And there's some yeah. pretty spectacular events happen now, isn't there? Yeah, there is. The one you were involved with in Leeds, they have a a big dinner every year called a dinner for the dinner, like to raise money for the yeah. Christmas dinner. And they have, they have the Lord Mayor comes and um, businesses, they buy tables, you know, for this mm -hmm. black, a black tie dinner. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very special, yeah. Yeah, the first time we did that, we did it at the, the hotel in Leeds, the hotel in Leeds. I'm making it sound like there's only one hotel in Leeds. <laughs> There are many hotels in Leeds, um, a hotel in Leeds, um, and they donated the room and everything for free. Um, and we did a black tie dinner and, and it was a proper auction. We got something from the Kaiser Chiefs, um, you know, a signed album from the Kaiser Chiefs. And I think that went for like, I don't know, £2,000 or something. Wow. And I can't remember. Don't quote me on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But all that money goes back in the pot to sort yeah. of give these young people this thing once a year. Um, because a lot of them are suffering this separation and separation from their own siblings because they've That's been right. through this, this system. Where was the... Um, there was one girl, wasn't there? Was it in London who'd come together with her sister for the first time Manchester. Like, yeah, in Manchester? Manchester. Yeah, in yeah, like yeah. five years, they'd been put in separate care homes. Yeah. And they'd yeah. not had Christmas together in five years. Yeah, yeah. 
They were separated that kind of... like an experiment. Yeah. Sorry? They were separated like an experiment. You know, yeah, were, I mean, that's know. astonishing that that sort of thing happens to it these does. people. Um, and working on something like that project was just a real eye opener to actually understand the difficulties that these young people face. Yeah. Um, the like abject loneliness that that must bring being taken away from your big sister. Yeah. Really. Yeah, yeah and they were um, so happy to be back together again. Um, yeah. Yeah, so there's so many stories. If you Google the Christmas dinners and my name, you'll see the videos um, from the Christmas dinners because there's just so many of so many stories like the one you've just mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, I guess one of the things about your, knowing your path and finding your identity is that you can then serve others. It is yeah. then no longer all about you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I find, you know, my story, finding my identity, it, in a blink of an eye, I didn't realise that it's all very self-centred. And so the power of that, and there's nothing wrong with actually putting yourself at the centre, but actually the power of finding your identity is that you then can look outside and say, okay, how can I serve? Yeah. It's interesting you say that because the last two interviews that I've done, both of the interviewees have said that same thing. It's about finding this strength from within you and how you can serve and what you can bring to the rest of the world. Yeah. 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 Well, that's going to bring me to, we've been on for over 40 minutes now. <laughs> <laughs> um, a rather generic question in a way, but just to close, what is your favorite thing about what you do and what you bring to the world? And oh, I know there's um, many, many, many things that oh you do. Oh my gosh, well, it's the way it touches other people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can receive a message from somebody who's in hospital, who gets one of, who's got one of my daily poems, sort of, I don't do them anymore, but, but as, as, as got it on their, their sideboard. I'll tell you a story, just a really quick one. A woman asked for one of my morning poems, and this is it, and she was in hospital dying of cancer. And it's, how do you do it, said night? How do you wake and shine? I keep it simple, said light, one day at a time. And she just wanted me to write that inside one of my books. And her friend contacted me and I wrote it inside one of the books and sent it to her. The next call was from her son who was burying her, who said, can I have permission to read that poem at her funeral? One woman once wrote to me and said, um, no, she came to an event. And she said, your poem, Invisible Kisses, means a lot to me because my husband read it to me at our wedding. Wow. And she said, and I read it at his funeral. My goodness. You know, a poem can touch people at their most needed moments in life and in death. And the fact that people would choose what I do to symbolize those moments is the best I've ever done. Yeah. 
Yeah. Did that answer your question? Yeah, completely. Incredibly powerful when you get that personal connection with somebody. I mean, your poetry is on the streets of Manchester, on the sides of buildings in yeah. Yorkshire. Yeah. You, you know, it, it's all over the place. But when you find that somebody actually connects with you like that on that deeply personal level, that's a completely different thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what I think I'm most proud of. And the people who read my book, um, the many, many messages I receive every day almost still a year and a half after the book coming out to say how how it's moved them changed them etc yeah 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 let me say that was fantastic thank you thank you <laughs> so if you want to find more about Lem and what he does, like we started with, he's a very busy man, <laughs> enjoying every aspect of what he Trying does. To, yeah. <laughs> There's so many places that you can find what Lem does. Yeah. We'll make sure that I add relevant links where I can and then people can follow you and follow your many layers of creative work as well as find your books. So thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Total pleasure, Miz, um, and thanks for your time and your expertise for tease for 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 um, driving me in this interview. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's okay. So uh, don't forget to give Lem some love on social media and um, have a read of his books. They really are fantastic. I was totally moved the first time that I met him and, and saw his work. So, I mean, at least I'm sure he's on YouTube. Have a look at some of the things there and then maybe find some of the bigger things that he's doing as well. See if you can get to see his work in real life, which surely we'll all get back to soon. Um, Hopefully that will guide you through some of your own journey and some new experiences yourself. And I will speak to you next time.